calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing and capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. Today is part three in a three-part mini-series featuring authors of Research Foundation Briefs. And I've got another terrific guest to introduce you to. Alison Schrager, author of Learning About Risk Management, Insights from Unconventional Risk Takers. Now, in case you're not familiar with it, the CFA Institute Research Foundation publishes independent, practitioner-focused research that is academically rigorous and easy to read. Its briefs are short papers intended to provide content that is easy to consume. Allison is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and co-founder of Lifecycle Finance Partners, a risk advisory firm. She has a PhD in economics from Columbia University and is the author of the book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. We cover a lot of ground in a short time from lessons investment professionals can glean from big wave surfers to retirement risk and what the U.S. retirement picture looks like post-pandemic. We also discuss whether, in the light of what happened recently with GameStop, retail investors should be allowed to buy individual stocks. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Alison Schrager, and don't forget to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe. Alison Schrager, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm, I'm really excited about this episode because I think it must be the first time that we may be able to get big wave surfing, movie making, and poker all into the episode under sort of the, the umbrella of risk management. So we've got lots to cover and we're gonna sort of dive straight in. So a few months ago, I had a guest on the show and we started out our conversation with her being in prison. So she wasn't an inmate, she was actually doing a researcher. Uh, so I'm doing some research there. So we're gonna also start in a kind of an unconventional place today. We're gonna to start in a brothel which features in the title of your book. So how did you end up in a brothel talking to a pimp about risk management? And what did you learn? Well, it all started when I was trying to start the book. And I had this idea that I was going to find cool parables to illustrate risk. And then I realized my training as an economist meant I really did not know how to do such a thing. So I was complaining to a cousin of mine that uh, I needed a good story. And he's a lawyer. So I'm like, do you know anyone who's a criminal? I feel like a criminal would have a good story. And he goes, well, no, but my girlfriend runs an illegal um, business. She matches um, submissive sex workers with their clients. And because this is such a risky thing, she, her value added, because it's easy enough to find clients online, she does all the risk screening. And for this, she gets 30%. And I'm like, oh, that's a good risk story. Because I'm always looking for how do you put a price on risk reduction? So I wrote a story about this, and the next thing I knew, I heard from the Bunny Ranch, the famous brothel in Nevada. And 
they, uh, you know, it turns out there's a hierarchy within the sex work profession too. And they were like, well, if you're gonna be writing about our brothel, you should be a brothel, you should be writing about ours. Cause this is like the Goldman Sachs of brothels. Like, you know, if you're working in the sex trade, this is where you want to be. And they're like, except these small time internet things, you should be writing about us. And I'm like, well, I don't write about brothels. I write about pension economics, but you know, I don't get this conversation call every day. So let's indulge this. So he explained how this all works. And he explained to me that, you know, there's no set prices, that everything's individually negotiated. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. So you mean you have women who are like 19 or 20 negotiating for tens of thousands of dollars with rich men in their 60s? And he goes, yeah, it's all the time. And no one's ever asked about that. They come here not really, he said, knowing their values. We have a negotiation training program. And I was like, really, I'm, I'm not very good at negotiating. All the pitfalls about women in negotiation, like I'm guilty of, I never ask for enough, I'm shy, I'm worried I'm going to offend people, all these things. So I had this wonderful editor at the time, and she insisted I go to Nevada and go through this negotiation training program, which meant I, I go out there again as an economist, not really trained to speak to people at all, um, really have to get into it with these women about what they charge and how they set their prices and how they feel comfortable. And, you know, I became a much better negotiator along the way, obviously, as I learned all their tricks. But it really struck me, you know, first of all, that they gave up 50% of their earnings to the brothel. That seemed like a really high cut, much more than uh, that legal business. And two, that how much they charged compared to the illegal market, which I had some data on. And it turns out this was all in the name of risk reduction. So, um, I did the uh, negotiation story. I was there on and off for like two weeks. And then when I started the book in earnest, I asked to come back and do a survey on pricing. So I also did listen to, there was a TED talk or TEDx talk that you did uh, about that experience. And something struck me that you said in that talk, you said it gave you a whole new philosophy, like a life philosophy. Uh, and you said you need to hear more no's than yeses. Just elaborate that on a, a little bit for us. Yeah, so my fear around risk-taking with um, negotiating was that people would say no. And I just was like, well, how does the relationship move on? And I don't, I always feel a little offended when people say no to me, or maybe they feel offended they have to say no to me. And so I, I got to know the owner of the brothel who since died named Dennis Hoff, who is a fascinating character. I like people, I guess I feel conflicted about. They, uh, you know, and I definitely had a lot of conflicting feelings about him. But he he had this sort of weird feminist energy. Um, and one of them was this sort of message of like, you shouldn't feel ashamed to hear no. In fact, that's how you know you're asking for enough. And in fact, 50% of negotiations here fail. And if you're not failing enough negotiations, you're not asking for enough. Otherwise, you, you know that you're worth more. And so that really, as it helped me get past this, because I still hate hearing no, it still makes me nervous. I still hate saying no to people. But every time I do, I'm sort of like, all right, it, means it sucks to hear no, but you know, I know I've asked for enough and I've pushed it as far as I need to go. And you also learn from him, again, how to hedge that risk or manage it by sort of giving the negotiation other room to go. Like, so it doesn't become this confrontational yes or no, but sometimes you're just not going to make a deal and that's okay too. So I guess the key takeaway is if you're not hearing no enough, you're not asking for enough. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And you have so, to be comfortable with that and comfortable that yeah. sometimes you're just not going to make a deal with people. I think it's a fascinating story. So your Research Foundation brief is a terrific read. And I just want to tell listeners that in the show notes, we'll include a link. And I would really encourage you to go there, download it. It's free and read it. 
and it contains uh, three parables, that's the word that you use, uh, about risk takers to, I guess, illustrate risk management. Um, and you also talk about the power of storytelling. So before we go into the actual stories, I would love for you just to talk a little bit about storytelling, because I think it's really underappreciated. And you didn't exactly set out to be a storyteller when you graduated. No, um, I think like most economists, you want to, you know, push the frontier forward. And then when I got involved in finance and I've always been involved in retirement economics, finding new solutions for that problem. That's what you're trained to do. Um, but I, I started to notice as I got more involved and I sort of ended up for a variety of reasons, ending up with a side career as a journalist that, you know, so much of what was going wrong was just we weren't really communicating risk to people. We seem to just operate under this assumption people can't understand risk and that it's too challenging for people to make risk decisions. But on the same time, we never really have taken the time to really think about risk communication and how can we communicate risk in a meaningful way to people. And it turns out there's a whole burgeoning area of this in data science of people figuring out, like for tech firms, how to communicate risk in ways that are meaningful to people visually. But we kind of already knew the answer, which is storytelling. I mean, we've always used parables as a tool to explain concepts to people that maybe are a little abstract. Like you even think of how Christianity took off these sort of moral stories came through parables about people. They connect with it. And so I had this idea that maybe a different way. I mean, I said, we're all finance professionals. We've all spent a lot of time learning about risk, which is a very esoteric and complicated thing. But how much time have we spent learning on how to explain risk to people, which is ultimately a huge part of our job, if not the most important part of our job, probably more useful than having a very complex, like, sophisticated risk strategy. So I wanted to experiment with a parable structure to explain risk to people. And that, I guess, was the foundation of the book and how it all got going and how I went to all these strange places. So there are three terrific parables. And uh, since I grew up in a place called Durban, which is like known as sort of South Africa's surf city, I would love to spend a bit of time on the big wave surfing because I was frankly quite surprised. Uh, I think like other people, I have this notion in my head that big wave surfing can be like really risky. And uh, it was really enlightening to read your section about big wave surfing and risk management. So. For the listeners, walk us through kind of that story and kind of the lesson, and especially what lessons investment professionals can take away from big wave surfers. Well, I mean, there, there's a lot there, and I think there are a lot more like us than we realize. I ended up going to the, uh, it's called uh, the Big Wave Risk Assessment Group, which is actually an annual risk conference of big wave surfers. Like they also sit in a windowless conference room and look at slides with lots of numbers. It, it reminded me, I was shocked, you know, how much it reminded me of one of our conferences where people are just talking about risk. And not only that, the, the big question they had, which is a question we also faced, and there aren't easy solutions, but there definitely needs to be more dialogue, which is if you take a risk and it poses harm to others, like some sort of systemic risk, where does responsibility lie with you, with regulators? Um, and that is the big question for them. And it's the exact same issue we're facing because as they gain more technology, they gain the ability to take more and more risks. And sometimes those risks become systemic. And how do you take risk responsibly, particularly when you have a new technology and you're not even sure of what those risks are? So one of the men I met there is an amazing man named Brian Kulana, who comes from a long line. He's a native Hawaiian of famous surfers. 
he's part of this like Hawaiian big wave surf dynasty. And he brought um, jet skis to big wave surfing. Now, jet skis to big wave surfing, it turns out, are a lot like options contracts in financial markets because they are it is effectively insurance, which is what options are supposed to be. Right. It's like, you know, you can buy a put option on the stock market. And if it falls below a certain level, you know, you'll still get paid. So it is technically insurance. But like any insurance or any risk management technique, you can always flip it around to take more risk. You can use options to lever up quite a bit. And it's the same thing with the jet ski, which was initially, as I said, insurance. If you wipe out, it's there to rescue you. But after a while, surfers realized they could use it as leverage. They, they found out they could take these jet skis to push themselves on higher waves. Like when you look at pictures of people surfing those crazy waves in Portugal, like 80 feet high, they were, there's no way the human body can paddle fast enough to get on a wave that big. You have to be pushed on by the jet ski. So all of a sudden, once jet skis came into the picture, People were safer in some ways because they had this insurance, but now instead of surfing maybe a 30, 40 foot wave, they could surf an 80 foot wave. And this really upped risks and it really got people thinking about the role of technology because, well, it could get a great surfer on an 80 foot wave. It could get someone like you were, I don't know about you, maybe you're a surfer. I am not. But if I had a jet ski, even I could get on like a 20 foot wave now where I have absolutely no business being. Um, so the question, so the question they just really spent a lot of time debating because there was a new technology coming out with an inflatable vest of what's this going to do to the industry? You know, this makes us safer, but also it's going to raise risk in other ways. And how do we make that balance? So we didn't have time to go too deeply into sort of the, the poker and the, the movie making, but just for the sake of the audience, maybe we can give, you know, to keep the movie theme going, a little trailer uh, for the audience uh, or a teaser as to why they should go and either read your book or re read the, the brief about why you included parables about a poker player and about someone who wants to go and finance movies. Well, for the movie one, I think it's um, a very pressing issue now which is uh, how do you measure risk when a risk is unmeasurable? Which I think when we're now that we're in this COVID world where we had a risk we're not dealing with before, how, how can you use data when the past doesn't tell you much about the future? I mean, you could think even the movie industry, how much the COVID has changed their economics. How are they going to know what movies to make in the future? Um, and for um, poker, I spoke to this. Um, I think we all know about all the behavioral biases, particularly um, how we tend to take more risk when we're down and too little risk when we're up and, or, you know, or at least are consistent about that. So I spoke to a really famous poker player who's known for not having a lot of control yet manages to play in the opposite way. He uses to be very disciplined and consistent in his play and learned how he managed to overcome that as evidence that like, we're not really doomed to our behavioral biases. We can overcome them. So I guess one of the things I took away from the brief is that there is a real science, what was art, to risk taking. And uh, I just want to make sure that the audience is very, very clear. We haven't actually defined any of these terms. Define for us so that they can take away very clearly in their minds, what is risk? How do you define risk? And what is prudent or good risk management? And again, this all adds up to why it's so critical. Um, so risk to me is very simple, is a measurement of uncertainty. The world is uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, but risk is an estimate of all the things that could happen. And for us in finance, that usually takes the form of a probability distribution. It's all the things that could happen and how likely they are. It's never definitive. It's just our best guess of what's going to happen. Some guests are better than others. And for me, that is risk. It's downside and upside, which I guess is different than how other people define it. Because anytime you take a risk, there's a possibility of a good thing or a bad thing. Um, prudent risk management or prudent risk taking 
um, is one, I guess, choosing the right risks, taking a risk that have a possibility of good upside and upside you want and a probable upside. And two, thinking about how to manage downside risk and knowing, being prepared to pay to reduce it if that's appropriate. So you're a risk economist and you've done a ton of work in retirement finance. Uh, I think you told me you're, you're, it's your first love at, as an economist. This is a really tough environment for people who are, I guess, on the verge of retirement. I think the COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted many sort of people's plans uh, for retirement. So from, from your perspective as a, a person who studies risk, who studies retirement, what does the retirement picture in the US look like to you at the moment? And two questions, sort of what worries you? And on the flip side, is there anything that gives you a little bit of hope? Well, I'll start with hope because I think this gets undersold is I think we're in better shape than people realize. Actually, if you look at, I mean, these golden days of DB, DB plans never really existed. They never really covered that many people. If you actually look at people's adequacy, people have more money for retirement than they've ever had. It still might not be enough for sure, but it's definitely more than people have ever had before. And rates of poverty and retirement are really are like the lowest of any age group. So I think we're not, in terms of asset readiness, well, people don't have enough. At least they've had more than they've ever had before. So I think things aren't the, quite the crisis people make it out to be. But that doesn't mean we can't do better. And there's a lot of room for improvement. People definitely should save more. And also we haven't, you know, the problem with this shift to defined contribution world away from defined benefit world is we've never really thought about what a good retirement looks like. We have a lot of thoughts on the accumulation phase, but like, how do you have an income strategy? How much should you be spending? And I think the solutions by far right now are just completely inadequate. Everyone wants this sort of magic number of what they can spend each year, but then are agnostic about how they actually invest their assets. But really we know from good risk taking that these things are, you need to have a strategy of what your income is gonna be and match your, your asset allocation to that strategy. And I think that's really where we're falling down is we're not really talking about the retirement part, just the saving part. So you mentioned what a good retirement looks like. And it reminds me of an article that I just read, actually, it was in the Harvard Business Review. It might have been from a couple of years ago. And just to list, you know, to listeners, I'll link to this in the show notes. And it talked um, about Dan Butner and his fellow researchers at National Geographic and the work that they do studying sort of longevity. And in this particular case, it was the Okinawans. And I'm just gonna read some of the things that I scribbled down. One of the things they do is they eat off smaller plates. Uh, they stop eating when they're 80% full. And they also have a very different outlook uh, on life than people in the West. So what I found really interesting is that they don't have a word for retirement. They have a word that they use called ikigai hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, which roughly translates to the reason you wake up in the morning, the thing that drives you the most. So that's kind of the preamble to the question that I have. And that is, should the idea of retirements kind of be reimagined or said another way, is, the, is retirement a flawed concept? I think so. I mean, I think it's healthy and better for people to still have some purpose, still have some socialization. Um, I certainly have encouraged my parents, they're both self-employed and in, ser in services, so it's easier for them to really never retire. I just tell them, phase out the aspects of your job you don't like, you know, just so and maybe work only like 15, 20 hours a week eventually. That's not possible for everyone, but maybe there's always something you can do if you have a more traditional employer, maybe go on them as a contractor. Or even, as I said, there's even a lot of evidence that people who work in a lot of service, like lower skill service jobs, actually report high levels of satisfaction and aren't even doing it necessarily for the money. 
So I, I think it's, as I said, especially if retirement lasts longer, not only does it financially make a huge difference, but I think first and foremost, I discourage full retirement because I don't think it's really healthy for people. So we're going to sort of shift gears a little bit to something that's been quite topical, and that's GameStop. And mm -hmm. I just want to read out for the listeners a couple of things that I saw that you'd posted on Twitter. So the first one was, there's a school of thought that retail investors shouldn't be allowed to buy individual stocks. I can see the argument, but can't imagine it ever happening. And then another tweet, I'm all for democratizing stock ownership. I've long argued more Americans should own stock, but this is not the way to do it. Buy an index fund. So that begs the question, why shouldn't Americans own stocks? Well, I'm not completely on board with this. My mentor, Robert Merton, uh, is a, has always said, like, buying an individual stocks, like owning like a single part of a car, it's expensive and kind of useless. Because, you know, you, I mean, we, the GameStop has really exposed how little we've really taught people what investing is. You're not investing isn't just picking a couple good stocks that make money. It's a cohesive risk management strategy, which is choosing, choosing a strategy that's less likely to lose money or is efficient, so you're not taking more risk than you need to, and is maybe even accounts for other sources of assets or income that you have to sort of manage that risk. And so owning individual stock, you know, let alone picking it on Reddit, isn't risk management. That said, I know a lot of people who've never invested before and have really found it empowering during the pandemic to buy individual stocks. It's not something I personally would do. If people do it with the little money they are prepared to lose, and it gets them more engaged with stock ownership, as I said, I think stock ownership is important. Only 50% of Americans have it. I think there's a, you know, owning stocks a really important part of um, wealth accumulation and growing your wealth. So I would encourage that. But I think we need to push more literacy on investing which isn't very hard, which is why index funds are important. It's not a cop-out on risk. It's actually just a way to get more for less risk. Um, when I was watching the GameStop hearings, I was sort of horrified that the owner of Robinhood or the CEO was really quite annoyed that he had to compare his user's performance to a benchmark, which I think the, the congressman suggested S&P 500. He's like, that's not how you think about Robinhood. It's how much you would you have lost if you just spent the money? And at first, I'm like, what does he mean? He doesn't know what a benchmark is. But when I thought about it more, I was like, well, maybe he's right. Because if you are day trading, maybe you should look at this as consumption and not investment. So you've had a very interesting career. You know, you have a PhD in economics. You've also worked as a journalist. You've written a book. And so I'm wondering, sort of, what's next on Alison Schrager's to-do list? What are you working on? Do you have another book that's in the wings? Um, I'm working on a new book. I still haven't sold it yet, but it's all about exploring uh, why we're taking less risk. Uh, we're seeing a lot less risk taking in the economy. As I said, even with um, stock ownership, I mean, that is up more than normal, but people, you know, not taking a lot of risk is a big reason they're staying further behind. We're seeing declining job uh, self-employment rates, job turnover rates, and even wage variability. But the flip side of that is the wage stagnation we're seeing. So exploring why the economy has become less risky and why we're becoming more risk averse and how we can break that cycle. So I'm working on a book on that and also working on, I guess, my work at the Manhattan Institute is policy prescriptions on how we can encourage people to take risk, but not just any risk, how to take good risks. Those risks I mentioned before that are the, like sensible risks and well-insured risks. So maybe you could expand on that just a little bit before we go to our closing questions. How do you encourage people to take on more sensible risk? Well, 
I think part of it's education. It's partially giving people good opportunities. And also, I think insurance plays a large role. I think we largely are underinsured in a lot of areas in our life. There's no reason why we can't insure income. There's no reason why more people can't take advantage of um, asset insurance. I mean, there's all sorts of ways we could be insuring. And there is evidence that said people actually perform better when they have some um, level of risk in their lives. But also they do get concerned about catastrophic downside risk. So if they are more insured, they might feel more empowered to take risk. We normally assume that's bad because it's moral hazard. But if we want people to take more risk, you know, and we don't sort of excessively provide too much insurance, then it can actually be quite healthy. Great. So we're going to go to our, my sort of closing questions that I ask every guest. And I'm glad that earlier you spoke about uh, going for the optimistic solution first, because one of the questions is what I call the ray of sunshine question, just trying to find something positive that's come out of the last, I guess, year in the pandemic. So what for you is one, I guess, positive, long lasting change that you hope to see as a result of the pandemic? Um, a good question. Um, I like to think that we'll appreciate each other more and a sense of community. When people do to get together, it feels so joyful now. So I, I hope that we'll appreciate what we've had a little bit more and how lucky we were. I mean, humans lived with death and disease for most of human history. And I mean, th this has been just so hard on everyone, but you realize how people live like this and much more deadly things for most of human history. So we're, I hope people realize how lucky we've been. That's true. So the second one is what I call the NASA question, and it was uh, an idea I got from a NASA sort of middle school education model where they were asking kids, you know, you're about to take a long duration space flight, you have to take one thing with you, what do you take? So that's what I've been asking my guests. You're about to take a, you know, a long duration space flight, but you only take one item with you. Mm -hmm. What do you take? They, they've supplied food and stuff like that. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> this is I'm a bonus sorry. item. <laughs> Okay, good eye cream. Good eye cream. <laughs> That's a good one. I have not heard that answer before. So that is a good one. And then the final question is on superpowers. And it's uh, what I, you know, flight or invisibility. So people who've heard the podcast before know that I got this idea because I was listening to a uh, this, uh, this American Life episode and John Hudgman uh, was asking a lot of his guests you know, which would you choose, you know, power of flight or the power of invisibility and kind of what it tells you about the person. So that's also my question for you. You can only choose one of those superpowers. So either you can fly or you can be invisible, but you're the only person in the world who has that superpower. Which one do you choose and what do you do with it? A flight. I mean, I don't even, I have no interest in being invisible. Um, so especially I think after this year, the idea that you could go anywhere in the world and not have to deal with an airline. I mean, that just sounds wonderful. I mean, you can see people, you can talk to people, you don't have to deal with it flying. I mean, well, the airline flying. So uh, I, there's, for me, it's no question. Well, that's true. I was just before, you know, waiting, waiting before our call, um, reading about COVID passports. That's just one more wrinkle in the sort of the bu bureaucracy of flying. So yes, being able to just sort of take to the air would be uh, super liberating. So thank you very much for joining me today, Alison. It's been a tremendous pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can do so on our YouTube channel or wherever you listen to the show. That way, you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, we'd appreciate a rating and review. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. And a quick reminder... 
This podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week.